welcome to the Vineyard Cleveland podcast. We hope you enjoy this message. For more information and other resources, please visit vineyardcleveland.org. Thank you so much. Um, did I do this right? Is this on? That's wonderful. It's good to be here with you this morning. I live in Columbus, Ohio, uh, where we do not have an awesome basketball team. Um, we don't even have a basketball team, do we? I don't think we do. No, we don't. So there's that. I was noticing, Evan, when you were doing uh, communion and um, you were praying and thanking God for all the ways in which he cares about the city of Cleveland. I, you just didn't mention Cleveland basketball. So I think God cares about Cleveland basketball. At least every, every person that I meet in Cleveland thinks that God cares about Cleveland basketball. So anyway, um, it's good to be with you here this morning. Before I launch in, I just want to say um, just how grateful I am for this church. It's my first time here, but as I've gotten to spend some time with Eben and Sarah the past couple of years, and um, even just the, the, over the past year getting to spend a little bit of ta- time with Tom and Anya in some work that I do in Tanzania with the Vineyard. I was actually in Tanzania with them in 2017. Um, I get the sense that this church has been in really awesome hands. And I get the sense that it will continue to be in awesome hands. And I am somebody as a pastor, as a church planter, I just love the church. Uh, A couple weeks ago, I was in a, a small village in Tanzania worshiping the same God that we are worshiping here this morning. And there's just something really sweet about how the Spirit of God is all across the globe. And I just want to say how grateful I am for you guys welcoming me here this morning. Um, I had an opportunity to spend a little time yesterday with some folks talking about uh, a a book I wrote and about the spiritual formation of children. I don't know what your faith story is. I don't know how you came to faith. I came to faith um, probably around the age of 9 or 10. And uh, I remember the day unlike pretty much any day that I can remember. It's like probably the, the most concrete memory I have from my entire childhood. And it was any, like any old Sunday. Uh, I grew up in a church where we sang hymns. And at the end of the sermon, um, you know, we, we sang hymns much like we like, re-sing worship here. And yet, in this particular moment, something began to happen in me. Something began to stir in my spirit. And um, one of the pastors got up and, and, and invited people to come down to the altar. Uh, how many of you have grown up in a faith tradition where there was an altar up front? Very, very similar kind of prayer ministry context in the church I grew up in. But instead of coming and standing and having people pray for you, there was this padded bench that you knelt at and somebody came and knelt beside you. And so he began to invite people up to come forward who were curious and interested about hearing the ways in which God loves them and Jesus is inviting them into relationship. And I began to experience this knot in my throat somewhere between here and here. And this like draw and pull up front. It was like there was a lasso around my waist and this draw and this pull began to pull me up front. And from my second row seat, which is where I always sat, I began to to just like tear up. And I'm like, what is happening to me? 
And by the third chorus or the third verse, um, I just knew that God was inviting me to come up front and to do some sort of business with him. And so I made my way down there in this kind of like dramatic fashion. I like just knelt at the altar and a pastor came and joined me and he told me how much, how much God loves me. And something shifted and changed in me. And it was like something from the outside came and made a house inside of my body and pushed out some other things. How many of you know what that feels like a little bit? So I had this wonderful experience. What I now know, what I now have language for, is that the Holy Spirit came and lived inside of me. And now I belonged to Jesus. Fast forward about six or seven years, and in those six or seven years, somehow along the way, I had more or less forgotten that experience. I'd pretty much forgotten about it. And somehow in my kind of young mind and young brain, because I had forgotten about that experience, what I had also failed to kind of keep a hold of my story was how much God loved me. I'm fast forwarding six years or so, about 24 years ago, I showed up at a vineyard church in Cincinnati, Ohio, and I opened my hands for worship. In that same strange mix of grief and sorrow and joy came down upon me, and once again, God reminded me of how wonderful his love is for me. And part of the reason I'm sharing this story, and I think part of the reason that I've been on this journey to try to explore what it means to help kids in a spiritual formation journey, to to fall in love with God and to know God and to be known by God, is that in between those two experiences, my conception and my idea of the kind of story that we were living in through all of the sermons that I heard and the Wednesday night Bible study and the scripture memory and the Awana and the Sunday morning worship, all of that somewhere along the way, the story that I thought I was living in was a story about me becoming a better person. How many of you have ever tried to become a better person? That's like the worst project, isn't it? Like you can like redecorate your living room and you know do some hard work and paint the walls and it's like that's hard work. But trying to become a better person is the worst kind of project possible. And because this was the narrative that somewhere I picked up on, my main experience of God as far as I could remember it, in those intervening years between this wonderful experience of God's love and this wonderful experience of God's love, in between was a lot of shame and guilt and wondering if God accepted me for who I was. That was my experience. And I want to say to you this morning, and I want to speak to you a little bit about this. How you imagine... Jesus interacting with you will drastically impact the way that you experience God. How you imagine your interaction with Jesus, how you read the story of Scripture and see and read how He is interacting with other people 
that will drastically impact your experience of God. And that's basically what I want to talk to you about this morning. And one of the questions that I've been kind of sitting with over the past couple of years and kind of leading our congregation through our small church plant, one of the questions that I often ask people as I sit with them and listen to their faith story is this question is, am I allowing Jesus to interact with me the way that I see him interacting with other people in scripture? Pretty simple question. But if you take a moment to think about it, it's actually a little also profound. Do I allow Jesus to interact with me the same way I see him interacting with other people in scripture? And one of the assumptions that we're making, and one of the things that we read about in Scripture, is that the way we conceptualize or experience our relationship with God, the way we see God's character and how He operates, the way we do that is we look at Jesus. And so if Jesus operates a particular way, if we see Jesus interacting with people a particular way, or we experience Jesus in a particular way, what we're experiencing is God himself. Okay? So I want to dive into a piece of scripture that's a familiar story maybe to some of you. Um, we, we find this story in John chapter 8. So uh, if you're welcome to turn there if you have a Bible um, or a, an app. I'll just assume you're not on Facebook or something like that. John chapter 8. I want you to Kind of imagine yourself into the story a little bit. Imagine Jesus is um, basically in the temple courts and people have begun to gather around him and he is, he is teaching. Um, all kinds of people are here. And all of a sudden, there are some teachers and leaders who begin to cause a commotion by dragging in a half-naked woman And standing her in front of Jesus. You can imagine that if this moment, like through those doors, some really angry men began to drag a woman who had maybe half of half of the clothes that she had were on her, the other half were in her hand, and now all of a sudden she is standing before the entire crowd in this kind of place of exposure and shame. This is the story that we're jumping into. So I want you to read with me. John chapter 8, I think we have, do we have this up here? Yes. So Jesus went across to Mount of Olives, but he was soon back in the temple again, which is where we are. Swarms of people came to him. He sat down and taught them. The religion scholars and Pharisees led in a woman who had been caught in an act of adultery. They stood her in plain sight of everyone and said, Teacher, this woman was caught red-handed in the act of adultery. Moses, in the law, gives orders to stone such a person. What do you say? They were trying to trap him into saying something incriminating so that they could bring charges against them. Now, a couple of things to keep in mind as we dive into the middle of a larger story that Jesus is telling. Jesus had been growing in popularity, and his message had been growing in popularity. He, he had been teaching in the outskirts of all of the little towns surrounding Jer- Jer- Jerusalem. 
And people began to see Jesus as a religious authority. They began to recognize that somehow something was happening in the words and the life that he was speaking. And as people began to to gather around him, he began to gain a, a level of authority unlike anyone else at the time had. And the complexity to this is the religious leaders... The people who were kind of in power over the religious people, they began to be concerned about how much of a following that Jesus was garnering. Does that make sense? There's like this little power struggle that's beginning to emerge. And so they want to trap him. They're trying to take him out. And Jesus had been preaching his message of forgiveness. And so they're pitting His message of forgiveness, which is new and fresh, against the law of Moses. In the context where everybody is trying to follow this law of Moses, which is what they they, uh, refer to. That Moses says we should stone the woman. He's been talking about forgiveness. And so they get this wild idea is that if we could bring in somebody who Jesus is going to want to forgive... But she has broken a particular law in the law of Moses. We'll be able to trap him. So that's kind of the context of what's happening here. So we find Jesus in a little bit of a, of a, of a quandary. If he upholds the law of Moses, which is what the religious people are going to want him to do, so that he doesn't undermine the teaching of Scripture. Man, we could do a whole sermon on that. I'm, I'm going to pause I'm going to put that aside. Just know that there's a whole another, probably a six-part sermon series for you coming up right there, buddy. Uh, He doesn't want to undermine what everybody thinks the scripture is about. Okay, so, but if he follows through with what the law of Moses says, what everybody thinks the scripture teaches, what they're going to do to this woman in that very moment is they're going to drag her down the hill, they're going to pick up stones, and they're going to throw them at her until she's dead. If he just says, I forgive you, there's going to be this uproar of kind of like, what do we do with the law of Moses? The thing that is foundational in all of these people's lives is going to be brought into question, and Jesus himself is going to be accused of blasphemy, and his whole ministry is going to begin to crumble. But what would you do? <laughs> that's, a, that's a tough spot, isn't it? So if you don't love anything about Jesus, as you read this story, I want you to notice if you love anything about Jesus because he does something unbelievably masterful. This woman has been caught in the bed of a man who wasn't her husband. She arrives here fully exposed with all her secrets out in the open. So let me just pause here on the story. I just wonder... If, you know, it's unlikely that any of us have ever been in this woman's situation. But I wonder if there's ever been a moment in your life where you have felt like maybe the nastiest, darkest parts of you have begun to become exposed to the people around you. Or maybe it's not even the nastiest, darkest parts of you. Maybe it's just like the everyday normal parts of you that just aren't pretty. (laughs) Does anybody have those parts that they see about themselves? 
Yeah, okay, so it's me and one person. Okay, great. Thank you. I love feeling not alone. So those rhetorical questions, I actually do want you to respond to because it just makes me feel better. And, uh, and if, you don't, if you're not aware of those, let me, let me uh, encourage you to do some things. Uh, get in a friendship. <laughs> uh, get married. I heard some amens on that one. Or become a parent. And all of those normal parts of who you are that just are a little bit ugly, a little bit skewed, um, they'll, they'll start to rise to the surface and you'll have to start confronting them, okay? So, I just wonder if you've ever had the experience of noticing that, wow, there's some things about me I'm not quite sure are really that pretty in here. There's some thoughts that I think, there's some reactions that I have in my relationships. Um, there's a temptation to, to cheat. There's a temptation to steal. Uh, let me just give you like a quick story. Yesterday on my way up here, I was stopping to get gas. I told Evan this. And I found a wallet. I found a wallet uh, on the ground at the gas station. And for a brief moment, because it had cash in it and a bunch of credit cards, for a brief second, I'm like, Sweet. <laughs> I just scored. Where's the best buy? Like for a sweet, hot moment, I had this thing. And I was just like, what am I doing? No. And I had to shift and I had to change. But it's like, that's in there in me. There's 30 bucks in the wallet. Like, man, I'll take my wife out to dinner or something like that. I didn't. I I tried to track the guy down. So anyway, I just, I don't know about you, but there's these moments that I have where I just recognize that there's things about who I am. There's things about the patterns of my life. There's things about my reaction um, that begin to feel exposed. And if you're in good relationships, that's going to happen. And uh, for those of you that are married, if I could just say a little bit of an aside. If, if that begins to happen in your marriage, the, the tendency is to run, to run away from that experience. And I want to say to you that that's not the, that's not the right thing to do in that situation. The right thing to do when your spouse or uh, when your partner or somebody begins to, to reflect back to you maybe something that is a little askew, the right thing to do is to say, can you tell me more about that? Let's work that through a little bit. I'm almost sure I just saw a wife go like this to her husband like that. Okay. So this woman is completely exposed. Her sin is completely out in the open for an entire crowd of people to see. And oftentimes we are in this spot where we begin to feel exposed. So let's go back to our story. Jesus is completely silent at this point in the story. The, wo- the woman is before him, surrounded by these angry men. And bending down, he begins to start writing in the dust. And as he's writing in the dust, he's just using his finger, right? Uh, the religious leaders around him are, are demanding a response from him. So let's pick back up in the story here. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger in the dirt, and they kept at him, badgering him. Badgering him. He straightened up. So he stood up, and he said, The sinless one among you, go first and throw the stone. Whoever is without sin, cast the first stone. This is where we get that phrase. 
Bending down again, he wrote some more in the dirt. Hearing that, they walked away one after another, beginning with the oldest. The woman was left alone. Jesus stood up and spoke to her, woman, where are they? Does no one condemn you? Do we have another slide? No, it's not. Go back. That's okay. She, she replies this. I left one verse off. She says, no one, master. Neither do I condemn you, says Jesus. Go your way. From now on, don't sin. Now, one of the biggest questions that this story brings up, and I don't know if this is kind of a question that you ask when you read this story, but what was he writing in the dirt? Wouldn't that, that's like a million dollar question. What was he writing in the dirt? I've done some thinking about this and tried to do a little bit of research. And in order for us to begin to answer this question, we have to go back to what's happening the week before this scene is unfolding. Now stay with me here because we're going to go dive deep a little bit in kind of the historical context of what's happening. But it's going to illumine, I think, what Jesus is writing in the dirt. Uh, The story about this woman is found in John chapter 8. But if you go back and read the previous chapter in chapter 7, what we learn is that this was during the time of the Feast of the Tabernacles. The Feast of the Tabernacles uh, was one of seven major feasts in the Hebrew calendar year. So there were spring feasts and there were fall feasts. And this is really how the ancient world actually operated. Not just in the Jewish context, but all throughout the area, all throughout the land at that time, there would be these tribal religions, and each religion oriented their religious life around the worship of their God, specifically related to harvesting, to planting of crops and to harvesting. And the Jewish people were no different. Uh, The spring feasts for the Jewish people who were worshiping Yahweh were Passover, the unleavened bread, and then there were first fruits and Pentecost. The fall feasts were the Feast of Trumpets, the Feast of the Atonement, and finally we get the Feast of the Tabernacles, which is where we find ourselves in the story. And the Feast of the Tabernacles was the last feast of the year. It was the seventh feast of the year, and it occurred just before winter, when the rain would come and water the crops so that they would grow, so that in the spring we would have a harvest. So... The Feast of the Tabernacles, what would happen is that thousands of Jewish people from all across the outskirting villages would come into Jerusalem. And what they would do is they would pitch tents, effectively, outside the city walls. It's called, uh, these tents were called uh, sukkahs. Uh, this is the, the Feast of Sukkot. Uh, for those of you like Jewish-minded folks are following that kind of thing. Uh, the Feast of the Tabernacles. And these tents, so imagine the hillside of Jerusalem. Have anybody ever been to Jerusalem? Oh, man, it's, it's amazing. I had an opportunity to go a few years ago. But basically, Jerusalem kind of sits here, but then there's this big kind of hillside. So you can imagine the, the whole hillside is scattered with all of these tents that people have brought in from their home in order to camp outside. And it had a practical purpose of allowing everybody to kind of camp and party outside the city. 
And then what would happen is during the day, they would come into the city, they would come into the temple, they would come into the courts, and they would worship, and they would celebrate, and they would rejoice in the fact that their sins had been forgiven, and they would cry out to God, God, would you bring water for our harvest? We believe you, we trust you to take care of us. That was the Feast of the Tabernacles. And the religious leaders, the people who had brought this woman in, during that week of feasting and that that week of celebration, they would have been like the main speakers on the stage. They would have been teaching from the scripture. um, And Jesus himself, in fact, was one of the teachers during that week of the Feast of the Tabernacles. He was viewed as one of the religious leaders, even though he was kind of the black sheep. Uh, Jesus would have been teaching from the temple court. Um, So we read in John chapter 7, about halfway through this eight-day feast, Jesus showed up at the temple and began to teach. And he was challenging some of the teachings of the other teachers, the scribes and the Pharisees, which is why, in our story, they're trying to trap him. Are you guys following the timeline here? Awesome. So now, nearly every teaching that the people would have heard during that week would have had some reference to water. It was eight days of teaching that were designed to highlight their practical need for water in the form of rain and their spiritual thirst for God. So during this eight-day teaching buildup, it would crescendo when the high priest would take a picture of water and a pitcher of wine and pour them together over the altar when all of the crowd would say, Hosanna, which means God save us. God save us from drought. God save us from our thirst. God quench our thirst. And it's in this context and it is this scene that we read from John chapter 7 beginning in verse 7. It says this, now on the last day of the feast, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out saying, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as scripture said, from his innermost being will flow streams of living water. It says that he is crying out and shouting. Why is he crying out and shouting? It's because there are thousands of people celebrating. And he comes up to the temple steps and he says, if anyone is thirsty, those of you who are expressing a spiritual thirst, if anybody is worried about drought, those of you who are feeling dried up, let him come to me and drink and out of your own spirit and body will flow streams of living water says Jesus. He is reorienting the entire focus of the eight-day celebration. That's enough to get you killed, (laughs) right? Jesus is radically changing the scope of what it means to participate in life with God. He is saying, I will quench your thirst. So it's in the midst of this festival with camping and drinking wine that this woman's sin and brokenness gets exposed for everybody to see. And Jesus makes a simple statement. He who is without sin, pick up the first stone. 
He's inviting them to reflect on their own life. One of the passages that he would have been teaching from or that somebody would have taught from during that week, one of the focused passages, is a passage from Jeremiah chapter 17, which says this, Lord, you are the hope of Israel. All who forsake you will be put to shame. Those who turn away from you will be written in the dust because they forsake the Lord. The spring of living water. Come on, Jeremiah. Let me read that again. It's a very important passage in the context of what we're trying to figure out happened with this woman. Lord, you are the hope of Israel. All who forsake you, you will be put to shame. Those who turn away from you will be written in the dust because they have forsaken the Lord, the spring of of living water. And Jesus stands in the temple and says, I am the spring of living water. What is he writing in the dust? He's writing their names. He knows these people. Jeremiah says that if you forsake the Lord, who is the spring of living water, your name will be written in the dust of the earth and not in the, in the glory of heaven. What is he writing? He's writing their names. Those who turn away from you will be written in the dust. So these, these men, as they are standing in judgment against this woman, are invited to reflect on their own sin and their own shortcoming. Jesus writes their name in the dust as a reminder that when you forsake the way of the Lord, who is the spring of water standing right before you, your name will be written on the earth in the dust. Jesus levels the playing field right there. He wants this to happen out in the open. Because these men have power and authority. And what Jesus is trying to do is to demonstrate to everyone that the only reason we are able to bring judgment against someone else is because we have failed to see and embrace and take account for the own sin in our life. Later on, Jesus teaches, you know, he, uh, why, why do you look at the, the, the speck in your brother's eye when you have this two by four sticking out of your own eye? That's my paraphrase, by the way. They didn't have two by fours back then, but you get it. Jesus is leveling the playing field because he knows is that the only way that you can actually bring judgment against somebody else is if you are unaware of the own darkness and sin in your own life. What happens is that when you become aware of your own darkness and your own sin and your own dysfunction and brokenness, the response to somebody else's brokenness isn't judgment, it becomes compassion. It becomes more like, oh, man, she's really, she's really responding unhealthily there. Gosh, I know I've done that before. I wonder what's happening in her life that is askew right now. And then rather than judging which creates distance between two people, right? You guys ever experienced that? 
rather than judging what Jesus teaches over and over again is that when we're in touch with our own brokenness and we receive the love and forgiveness of God, it leads us to compassion and then we move towards the person rather than away from them. He's trying to create the context of compassion. He says elsewhere, be compassionate as my father is compassionate. Do not judge or you will be judged. Do not condemn or people will want to condemn you. Forgive and you will be forgiven. Jesus is giving these men an opportunity to be honest about their flaws and their sin. To recognize that even in the midst of what they're doing, they're rejecting the one who can quench their thirst. And you might think, well, gosh, isn't Jesus condemning them? But no, they themselves are standing condemned because they're rejecting the life. Jesus is is welcoming. He's welcoming them. So he enters in relationship with this woman by asking her a question. Is there anyone left to condemn you? And this is actually a reference to the law. So the local law of the Jewish people stated that if something were to happen where people were to accuse you, there have to be people who are willing to stand and to say and condemn you. And if if there are no people there to bring you to court, then then you are free to go. And so Jesus says to her, where are all of your accusers? And she says, they've all left, Lord. And he says, well, then I don't condemn you either. Go and stop sinning. (laughs) It's the love and the compassion and the grace of Jesus that enables us to go and to change. Everybody leads. Everyone is free because no one is condemned. Everyone is free because no one is condemned. Everyone is free because when, even when everyone is exposed, there is no condemnation from Jesus and there is no comparison and there is no judgment. Can I say that again? Oftentimes when we hear something three times, it really penetrates. So I'm going to say that for the third time. Everyone is free because when everyone is exposed, there is no condemnation. There is no comparison and there is no judgment. What would it feel like for you what would it be like for you to hear from Jesus I don't condemn you when was the last time you came before God with a maybe an experience or an image or a picture of your brokenness your sin your dysfunction and you exposed it in front of Jesus And had the experience of Jesus saying, I don't condemn you. When was the last time you had that experience? Most of the people I talk to, when they discover this thing, 
They stuff it in a box and they run the other way. We, we are not people who naturally want to just bring the dark parts and the sin parts in front of Jesus. Because why? We are afraid of that interaction. But if this story in John chapter 8 teaches us anything, is that the way Jesus interacts and responds to this woman, who's completely exposed, is also the way that he wants to interact with you. I don't condemn you. I don't condemn you. Everyone's sin is exposed and no one is condemned. I'm going to lead you through just a a very brief exercise. So if you're comfortable, I want to invite you to close your eyes. We're going to kind of head into prayer. And if you're comfortable, I want to invite you to just open your hands, maybe on your lap, rest them there. There's no like magic here. This is just a way of saying to God, God, we pray to you with our body. We're open to you. Let's come Holy Spirit. I want you to ask God to bring something to your mind that you're maybe afraid to look at about yourself. And in this place of quiet, I want you to imagine bringing this scenario before Jesus. Maybe not try to hide it, just sit there with it. Sometimes I like to imagine myself just sitting next to Jesus on a park bench or you ask Jesus to begin to speak to you? The psalmist writes, when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy on me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. Then I acknowledged my sin And I did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. You know, as I was praying just a little bit for our time here this morning, I got a sense that God wanted to exchange shame and guilt for joy. I suspect that the woman left completely ecstatic, just really joyful. 
And so as you hear the voice of Jesus say over you, I do not condemn you. I think for some of you, as we maybe head into some ministry time, I think some of you are going to begin to experience a real shift where God is going to begin to replace shame and guilt with his joy, the joy of his grace. Come, Holy Spirit, even now, Lord. Yeah, I just get a sense that for some of you, you've been carrying around like a, just a weight, a weightiness, like really like a frustration about your 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 brokenness, a frustration about your struggles, and I just feel like God wants to replace it with a sense of like, you know what? It's okay. It's okay. I don't condemn you. 